All right, so welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, I have to ask, were you uh, affected by that advanced time change thingy that happened on the weekend, or no? No, I don't have a bell phone. Oh, I don't either, but I was like, see, just get rid of this daylight savings business. I've been going to work in the pitch black. I'm like, oh, come on. It's always the same this time of year, right? It's like, hmm. But wasn't the old time change changed under Bush, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on anymore. Just, <laughs> you're supposed wow. to listen to it. <laughs> what a way to start our new show. <laughs> Topping tonight's news, Scotty Hertz has no idea what's going on anymore, but he will in like 30 seconds. <laughs> Good to know. Opus Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Teresa McKeeman, who is again running the Guelph Campaign School, which will have its first virtual info session next week. How are we going to promote a more diverse slate of local election candidates? Teresa will have that answer that will be at the bottom of the hour though before that we are going to talk about well some news including the federal government's decision to appeal the ruling about compensation for indigenous children in the foster care system did trudeau pay any attention on the indigenous file in the last few months maybe anyway uh first though we have to talk about uh climate change and there was a meeting in glasgow cop 26 and uh i guess we probably solved climate change because like no direction came out of it it's i guess i guess climate change is over because you know we don't have any firm new commitments or anything i guess this is this is this is pretty much all in hand oh yeah it's all good we're done Funny enough, I was listening back to uh, one of our shows, Adam, the, uh, the Beyond the Ballot Box days, and mm. we used to do that round the table, like, what's the biggest thing of the year going to be? And in 2012, leading in 2013, mine was, well, it's going to be climate change. And this is the thing about these conferences. I don't think that Greta is wrong with her blah, 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 which is now like her catchphrase. Yeah. She had them chanting it all outside the uh, <laughs> Scottish Vent campus there. Um the kid's right. I guess I shouldn't, you know, demean her by calling her the kid. I don't mean that. At all. She's I think she's young. like she's almost twenty years old. So. She's almost twenty. <laughs> the kid's right. Old Scotty Hertz says, "Yeah." And this, but this is the thing with these conferences <laughs> is that the the pattern is is there's there's always this child of note, mm-hmm. even if they're close to twenty. That gets it, one one year it was uh, is it was a Severn Suzuki. Mm-hmm to great acclaim even back then before we had the communication we do saying oh you know time is running out because i remember in the early 90s like well we've only got to the year 2000 to fix this and then of course it keeps getting bumped forward now what are we at 2050 one thing i will say about greta though is that she learned to swear right away because (laughs) i saw her drop one i was like you've only been in glasgow for a few minutes and you're learning the ways of that beautiful city so but yeah um If anything, that, that's the change. It's, it's Greta's language change. It's not climate change and all. But yeah, so it's like 2050 target and there's countries that aren't there. And some of the countries that are there, like India, are like, well, yeah, 26, give us till 2060 or give us till 27. Like, come on, really? 
<laughs> blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, the weird part is like the shift is happening to like clean energy, and I was watching Chris Hayes' show on Monday night, and he, you know he was looking at how the IPCC report is basically like predicting like a worst case scenario of like 3.6 degrees. Uh, a few years ago, that used to be like 4.6. So like we're, we're slowly, but you know, we're not in the safe zone, but I mean, we have shifted and it's certainly not because there, you know, there's more government support for climate action and certainly not from the leading emitters like the United States, because they didn't do anything for four years under, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. under the big orange man. Um, you know, it's not because Canada's done anything too particularly noteworthy. It's it's not. I mean, last week, uh, <laughs> you know, a columnist from the Edmonton and Calgary papers had to be talked off the ledge because a Greenpeace activist was made environment minister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Their so, heads all simultaneously exploded in that one. Yeah, it was a full <laughs> video drone uh, yeah. moment. And yeah, it, the the you know both russia and china decided to like not go and you know those are some pretty big emitters to not be there so even in this like state of like <laughs> the people who should be working the hardest to do this i mean and also like all the world leaders there for like less than 48 hours and everyone's yep. like okay bye that was cool see everybody in whenever let's I hope i don't have covid yeah i hope i don't have covid yeah, yeah. so it, it's just you know it is changing and if you can change like if you could move off from the worst case scenario by like well we we have to do less than two so if we can like move off by like 50 percent by doing nothing what could we do if everyone decided to take action and i think that was a big question for me going into cop and it's a question that's still there's still no answer to because nothing substantive has come out of cop except like jeff bezos came in and said hey everybody i got some loose change in my pocket that i'm gonna donate to like reforesting places and of course it's like it's two billion dollars but jeff bezos is worth almost 200 billion dollars so it's literally the pocket change so i bet there was some choice language in glasgow about that too (laughs) i have no doubt that's kind of like Musk too with the okay you win, I'll give you six billion dollars and you fix this. Like just <laughs> stick to your space toys, lads, you know, really, right? But yeah, that that that's just plain annoying. It reminds you, you know, Bono swooping in and Bono, I don't know if Bono's there, but he's 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 old hat now. He doesn't swoop in anymore and take credit for everything that's happening. But no, yeah, or, or Bondo's shtick, yeah. Or yeah. Things that are happening or not happening. But something that did happen was that Biden apologized for Trump pulling out of the Paris Accord. Like America is back in now, but as you know, as I to mean, whether the the Paris Accord, which are still they're still sort of bound to, is going to make the changes. It's the, the the point of this meeting is like this is the refresher, right? It's like okay, so we had that accord, and now it's we need to kind of we need to meet again to discuss what we're going to do. I think they refer to it as the ratchet mechanism. Mm-hmm. Which is when they just boot around the percentages, right? We're going to make it X percent of these levels by Y year, right? So that that has all been that has all become zero by 2050. That's that's the catchphrase this time, mm-hmm. and I suppose it's easy enough for anybody there to say that because it's only 2021, right? So 30 years from now, Biden will be long gone, among others, right? It's like, well, you can say um, whatever you like. Now, the the real sort of getting down to it is, is happening now and for the next two weeks. So it isn't just the leaders meet 
mm-hmm. and then this is over. They need to sort of hack out what they're going to do. But like you said, China not there, Russia not there. And they sent video statements. I think I saw Putin's video statement. I'm saying I think, but he was on talking like, oh, this must be COP26 because I wasn't really paying attention. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, what's he saying? Yes, we need to do this. Uh, he seemed... The crawl looked like he was interested in, in the four. I guess there's some kind of forestry agreement that he's he seems to be okay with the uh, the reforestation agreement or something like by 2030 mm-hmm. we're not gonna hack away at the forests anymore because they're the lungs of the planet. But mm. I'm sure there's probably enough loopholes in that to drive a truck through or like drive a <laughs> drive a car through a, a giant redwood that has a hole well, cut per- in it. That you can like- cut a car through. Brazil right. signed on to that though, and it's like, what? Yeah. Was, what did Bolsonaro run on in like 2018? Yeah, it was like, yeah, I'm gonna more cut soybeans, it. please. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. chop down. I'll, I, look, <laughs> the Amazon rainforest is coming down, whether I have to go in there with a machete or not. And that was like almost essentially like a campaign slogan uh, yeah. of of Bolsonaro. So yeah, it, it's, and COVID is is a little cold, yeah, which uh, he had. But yeah, so he's yeah, <laughs> which he had several times. If I yeah, remember, he's probably done. If not from um, health problems, then. But anyway, that's yeah, that was surprising though because I didn't hear that. It's like wow, the clear cutters are signing on to this, but they've got till twenty thirty though, so they can what rip away until twenty thirty. Is that how this uh, works? Probably right. Probably that's yeah. It's it's like a tomorrow problem. Um, the thing about Biden too is like I I know he means well, but you know on the home front. You know, there's no guarantee that <laughs> this time next year uh, there's going to be any climate agenda at all. And I think you'd be hard pressed to say there's a climate agenda today. There's a there's a piece of legislation being held up in the legislature. And who's it? Mm-hmm. Who's one of the people holding it up? Well, it's the guy who made his mint on digging up coal and whose oh, yeah. and whose son, although it's like technically a quote unquote blind trust, the person in charge of the blind trust is his son. So. Like, yeah, Trump style. All the blind trust is like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, so it's like no one come, believes that. Yeah. It's like, come on, Joe. It's yeah, it's like we accept your apology for Trump. Lord knows somebody had to, but you know, there's <laughs> there's no sign anyone back home gets it. Uh, I mean, you we could make some of the same gestures and things here about Canada, but mm-hmm. it, it's. I mean, it's it's disheartening. Like there was such urgency going into this, and just to see everybody come home and to see like Trudeau go, "Hey guys, we got a carbon tax in Canada. Like you guys would be really cool if you could do a carbon tax too." And it's like, great, Justin. And he's yeah, that that's been the narrative here is is Trudeau's selling the the carbon tax thing pretty hard, calling in Mark Carney and some other heavy hitters to sort of have a little what looked like a roundtable esque thing and. And chat about it. And then IMF. Yes, we need to do that. I mean, all these, all these organizations that are like, yeah, really. The EU likes it too, but it's and of course, any activists that they talk to and the other, uh, you know, extra political people that are there are like, no, no, no. Every single thing, everybody they talk to is like, no, it's not enough. It's never enough, right? I mean, try selling a carbon tax in the U.S. Try selling a carbon oh. tax in Russia. Try selling a no way uh, a carbon tax. I mean. And in parts you, of Canada too. You could, matter, you, right? you could, well, you could barely sell it here. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, I, I saw this from John Robson in the in the post. Um, he said that you know, I'm I'm not quoting here, but he said like, here you have Justin Trudeau. It's like the, it's going on how it was the hottest year on record, and how gas prices are sky high, and we're about to hit the coldest winter, and we all need a carbon tax. It's like. Uh, okay, well, thanks for that insightful analysis, Ross McKittrick. But uh, 
The, the, the other two, yeah, I went there. But the, other, <laughs> the other thing too yeah. is, I was watching the minimum wage press conference with Doug Ford earlier this week, and someone from that Financial Post says, "Was like asking about gas prices." He's like, "Oh yeah, we should get rid of like the gas taxes." And I wish the federal government would help us do that. And it's like, dude, where does the where, like what what does the federal gas taxes go to fund public transit? What happens to public transit when gas tax money goes away? Do they, like are they still offering service? Are they still expanding service? And it's like, well, what's the number one thing in in United in Canada anyway that drives up emissions? Well, it's like mm-hmm. crappy buildings that are built to crappy environmental standards, and it's cars. So you know, maybe take the increase in gas. I mean, th- this was a lot of a lot of the same stuff was going on in two thousand and eight as well when Dion first proposed the carbon tax because we were like, look at our look at our gas prices are going up there he wants to tax us more and it's like well he's like it's not a tax it's carbon pricing yeah right and and it's like well these prices fluctuate and it's like it's this time next year who knows gas prices will be might be down again doug has that bass button in the back of his neck that just sort of like lights up when it's like oh talk bass talk bass gas tax Ah, bad right like yeah yeah that's true too (laughs) so it's just like we still don't like even just like on a basic level like we still don't get it it's like yeah you I'm sorry you can't like drive around in like a gas guzzling SUV with like, like, like Doug Ford does. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, the time. It, that time is over. Um, like, sorry, like not ev- like I, I realize that not everyone can take the bus all the time, but like some people are going to have to make a decision to occasionally take the bus. It, you know, and, and sort of speaking of that in, in, in terms of the uh, uh, COP26, I'd heard that the, and this was from a, a one of the papers that I follow from the UK, was that airplanes of people arriving yes. to the conference were flying into Presswick, which is a, a, an airport that's south of Glasgow, but not by much. It used to be sort of a bit of a hub. Think Gander, but smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And that's like the equivalent of flying from, say, uh, probably Hamilton to Guelph. Mm-hmm. So it's like that kind of stuff oh and people leaving their covid tests lying out in the street and there's like going to be a garbage strike so people like testing themselves going into the (laughs) event campus and just leaving the thing lying on the road it's like come on right so well there was a story in the telegraph even i'm glad you mentioned that uh that the european commissioner or the president of the european commission ursula von der Leyen, um she had ordered an air taxi 18 for 18 out of 34 official trips including one 31-mile trip from Vienna to Bratislava, which would take 68 minutes on public transit. And, (laughs) you know, we we see this all the time in, you know, some of the Guelph Facebook groups and things, and, like, people talking about, like, Europe is great with their, like, bullet trains and their bike lanes everywhere. And then you have good old Ursula, like, well, I believe I'll take this... (laughs) I believe I'll t- I believe I'll make this one hour trip on my. This air is taxi. Ursula of the beautiful scarves, right? Yeah, so it's yes. like not yes. not not riding steerage with the rest of the uh, the lump. Oh no, she no. is not. She is not getting with. She is not riding with the proletariat with those the ladies. Scarves. Not for turning. That's, That's for sure. right. Um, speaking of people who think they're better than everyone else, um, it's <laughs> <laughs> getting salty today. Oh yeah. Uh, it must be getting close to the end. It's of the year. weather. Yeah. Blame yeah. the weather. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, a decision a couple of months ago that uh, the federal government needs to pay restitution 
two First Nations children who were put in foster care from 2004 onward, uh, about $40,000 per kid as well, and uh, their parents compensated as well. The federal government has been actively appealing this to everyone um, almost up to the Supreme Court that may be the next step, uh, but they did tell the court this uh, last week, late last week, uh, just before the deadline, oddly enough on a Friday night, hmm, I wonder why they wouldn't do hmm. this in like the middle of the afternoon on Friday or sometime on Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, or Monday. Uh, that's a rhetorical question. But yeah, <laughs> the federal government has said that they are going to appeal this decision, uh, which goes to show that maybe there weren't a lot of lessons learned from the very urgent election we had a couple of months ago, uh, where even in Guelph here, there were a lot of people t uh, talking at liberal candidates about taking kids to court. This is what they were talking about. And it seems that the federal government still wants to take kids to court. Yes. Even though they will flatly deny it, particularly as most people saw during the debate when uh, Jagmeet Singh said to uh, Trudeau, it's like, why are you still taking indigenous kids to court? And he's like, that's absolutely not true. It's completely true. Yeah. And I, I cannot, and not for lack of digging into it either, can't figure out why, why they're doing this. The, 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 the tone is, is that they, they rather pay uh, a class action settlement to these kids rather than you know, pay, pay what the uh, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal told them to pay ages ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been, well, is it, it's, it's like 15 years now this has been going on. Now, I mean, what? I guess one of the differences is, and people will know the name Cindy Blackstock, who was the person that initiated at least one of these, because there's there's sort of like two legal actions, several legal actions going in tandem. But she was she's mm -hmm. behind two of them, and she is the person that that the Harper government went after. Like they went after her aggressively, and I believe we talked about it back in the day, mm -hmm. um, trying to find dirt on her and trying to discredit her, uh, rather than addressing this. And of course, the Harper government is 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 the government that apologized. But that, let's put that aside for a second. Now, uh, Trudeau and company come to power and say, oh, "Yes, we're going to do all these things, and we believe in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and all that." And yet, there is this. I don't understand it. Now, I was thinking back: is is it maybe because the era of the '60s scoop is his father's era? Mm. I don't know if that's a bit of a reach, but it's like, why are you fighting this so hard? Just, just pay. Just it's forty thousand dollars, but and they're implying that they, they want to do so much more. We need a structure, and they do need additional structures. I don't know if that's what it is. Like you can, you can very easily pay out money to anybody, right? It's just here, here's money for you, you, you. But when you have to uh, do things like build infrastructure to take care of things, and that's that the um, other case, the let's call it the Jordan's principle case. Mm -hmm. which was established a few years ago saying that, you know, indigenous children should also get the health an equivalent coverage of healthcare and, uh, and services that any other child in Canada gets, which they don't. The Jordan's principle ruling was like, you need to do this. So the government needs to do this. Jordan was a, was a young man who ended up living like his entire life in the hospital because they didn't have services for him at home where he lived, which happened to be, a reserve mm -hmm. and they're they're not directly fighting that but it, it's an indirect you know you're you're saying we're we are not going to do this for you after so on the one hand they're saying we're, we're oh of course we want to do all this but the same it's like both sides of the mouth right we're we we don't want this we want to come up with a separate settlement it's like well what is that 
mm-hmm. you have they, what is it you have there's been no they haven't implied anything it's like well we we want to do this separately it's like well why don't you start with this and then you yeah. can move to that right i think it essentially comes down to like we don't want to do what like because the court told us to do it like we want to have like our own separate you know, you can't have a press event because you're filling the obligations of a court order, right? And I think that's what they're going for. It's like they want to have a big press event where it's like, we have reached this historic settlement yeah. with First Nation. And it's like, take a knee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, that's going to ring completely hollow because the first reporter who asked the first question is going to be like, why didn't you just pay the freaking settlement? <laughs> Especially if um, it, the number comes in less. Like, if they, you know, it's instead of forty thousand per kid, it's like thirty five thousand dollars per kid, or even less than that. Or if it's more than that, if it's like fifty thousand dollars per kid or sixty thousand dollars, that no matter what it is, the first question that the first reporter asks is going to be like, "Why didn't you just freaking pay the settlement?" Because it's at, all, all told, it's about two billion dollars, mm-hmm. which I know, I know, it's literally not chump change, but it's chump change uh, in terms of like plans cost more, right? Oh well, yeah, to, to buy exactly. a pipeline costs more. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like they didn't think twice about spending four billion dollars, twice as much, to buy that stupid pipeline that is never going to get built, no matter how much, no matter how hard Jason Kenney prays. But it's, you know, we're gonna fight nickel and dime indigenous kids or or formerly kids, you know, because a lot of those kids have grown up now, and um, their families too, and their families constant, too, right? yeah. and. You know, you know, you know, government governments piss away more money than I like bailouts. Like how much how many billions of dollars is, you know, what's their names? Um, Aerospace. What are they called? I was going to say Bombardier, but Bombardier. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For 10 points. (laughs) Bombardier. SLG Lavalin. We it's like we will throw money at anybody except indigenous people. Yeah. And that, that. that's what's puzzling about this. And like you said, is it going, is it because it's going to be less or do they, are you, you know, do they want to make this big announcement? Mm -hmm. It's like, stop, stop focusing on making the big announcements and do stuff, which is what everybody is asking them to do. I mean, literally everyone Mm -hmm. they're saying, well, we want it. We want, we want negotiations. We don't want litigation. It's like, well, it's too late. The litigation has gone through. The result has been that the Canadian government has to pay. Mm Mm-hmm. Just do that. They're like, no, no, no. We want to do this. Can you imagine if the tables were turned? If it was the conservative government? Or oh, even, yeah. Well, in the unlikely event that it was an NDP government, the crying that would be coming from the mythical liberal opposition about this? Yeah. You know what they would say? They would say, why are you taking Indigenous kids to court? That is exactly what they would say, right? So yeah. if the table was turned, that is what they would say so that is what is so puzzling about this and i would love i because it's it's nearly impossible to find that answer and when you see somebody talking to the media like sydney uh, cindy blackstock or pam palmeter and they're like why we don't understand yeah we've done all the homework this all happened just pay so i don't know where it's gonna go like that's they've appealed it again and again how many times is it now somebody i think it was Charlie Angus mentioned how many times it was. This is like many, many times. They've said yeah. no, 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 no to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously went back into the Harper era as well. So they're, they're just following, following the lead on that. But 20, interestingly, 20 legal actions, Charlie 20 Angus legal said. actions. Yeah. 
So if they're going to hit any of the truth and reconciliation targets and the calls to action was like 94, right? Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing that needs to happen. And yet that was announced. We should talk about a little bit about it, but today or yesterday announced the, uh, the Ontario government releasing the death records of the indigenous children um, that that were in in, uh, residential schools in Ontario. There's like, they found 1800 records. Mm -hmm. So, it could be said as of today that the, you know, the current government, now those records have been, they've been searching for them for a number of years, but the current Ontario government today has done more for truth and reconciliation than like all of this legal action and lawsuits will ever do. Like just in, in one day, like right. it makes, it makes absolutely no sense. Well, there's it's also a small the- measure, but it's something right. It's, it's contributing to that. And that's what needs to happen. Well, there's also the, like, the undercurrent of this which of like some indigenous activists are getting to where it's like the 60 scoop is still essentially happening yeah. it's, not, it's not just you know we're not shipping kids off to residential schools where they mysteriously never come home anymore um but i mean we're still taking indigenous kids out of their communities uh by force in the name i mean granted it's in the name of social welfare but we're still doing it and um instead of trying to find ways to help them in their communities and it's because they're to get back to the jordan principles you know it's um there's still this sort of uh ethereal other world of in terms of how um we treat uh indigenous uh people with, with our social services social services t- typically fall under the umbrella of like the provincial government but with local administrators that's not the case when it comes to reserves and other places where it's like on the federal jurisdiction and it's kind of like a, a legal loophole which is um you know one of one of the parts of one of the many you know legal actions brought to the courts on this so it's just hmm. there, there are so many more bigger things to work out than just signing the bloody check so i don't know why they wouldn't sign the check so they can get down to the actual like really hard work of trying to sort this out so there are no more like 60 scoops or 80 scoops or, you know, 20 scoops, I guess we're, yeah. we're at now. Like it, it, it just like, they're, they're, they're going to sign a check either way, like sign the check now and then get down to like just fixing the problem. Yeah. Cause they have, if we don't fix those, the colonial system roots that have caused all this and it, you're right. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't happen, there's no effort made to fix that other than just paying out. Mm-hmm. They can do both. Like it's, mm-hmm. It's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And just like he was going to give a billion dollars to Mark and Craig, and that was cool. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we saw how well that worked out. I think um, Somehow, I think it's probably going to mean more to the Indigenous people. But we will uh, leave that there and take a quick break. And uh, we will come back with um, something a bit more local. You are listening to... Uh, well, what are you listening to? <laughs> I, I blanked a minute. Can you There's tell? There's a show, and you're <laughs> listening that, to it. It's that time of year. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Ain't no yellow brick road 
running through Glasgow, but I found one that's stronger than stone. Ah, yes. Ain't no yellow brick road running through Glasgow. That was uh, <laughs> Jesse Buckley from the movie Wild Rose. It's a good movie. This, this, oh, yeah, it is excellent. excellent. Uh, the song is called Glasgow No Place Like Home, and that is our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, 21 MacDonnell in the downtown. Downtown Guelph, because there's no place like home, and there's also no yellow brick road on MacDonnell <laughs> Street. <laughs> Yet. You never know. <laughs> well, that's something that started out at City Council. And if you want to be on City Council, check out this segue. Uh, you Solid. might want <laughs> I shouldn't have called attention to it. Now I'm lost. Uh, you, you'll need the help of Guelph Campaign School. You might need the help of Guelph ca- Campaign School if you're looking for a place to start. Uh, they are currently thinking about the next year's election. It is less than a year away now. So if you are thinking about running for City Council, or maybe if you just kind of want to better idea of what it would take to run they are especially looking to help uh women as well as people in diverse communities in town so if you are lgbtq plus if you are a bipoc person or from another um underrepresented community in guelph they would like to hear from you and you will hear right now from Teresa mckeeman who is running the guelph campaign school and uh, she is going to tell you all about what it takes to run for something and how she and the other people at campaign school can help out and when you can get started and uh well why listen to me talk about it i have i have a tape i have a tape here with Teresa mckeeman on it so let's uh hit play on on that interview right now okay so Teresa mckeeman thank you for joining me today thank you for inviting me so just to sort of set the table, uh, how long have you been doing campaign school? And um, I, I guess, well, let's, let's, let's just start with that. Uh, how long have you been doing campaign school now? Right. So our first <laughs> campaign school in Guelph was in 2018 uh, for the municipal election. So this will be campaign school number two. Okay. And what was the original idea behind campaign school? So I've been involved in a number of organizations, social justice organizations, et cetera, um, and also a a women's organization. And the issue of parity for women always comes up. And Mm -hmm. so in 2018, I connected with Councillor June Hoffland and we talked about just supporting women's campaigns um, because we knew that uh, it, it's harder for women to run. They tend to take longer to make the decision. They need to be encouraged more to put their names forward. And they face a lot of unique barriers. And so we partnered, uh, I was with CFUW at the time, we partnered with uh, the Community Engaged Scholarship Institute at the university to sort of look at what those barriers were. And the and one of the recommendations at the end is that we should do more to prepare women for running mm-hmm. for office. And just to add some historical uh, context, parity 
for women has not always been an issue in Guelph. We've had some pretty good female representation in Guelph in the last 20 years, including at one point in around the beginning of the century when the mayor was a woman, the MPP was a woman, and the MP was a woman. Yes. And the police chief was a woman as well, all at the same time. Yes, and we've lost ground since then, Adam. So, you know, it's always a bit tenuous, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Women make up 50, approximately 52% of the population. And so it's really an issue of democracy too, you know, representation. You know, women generally have not had equal representation across the country Mm -hmm. and particularly in municipal politics. Yes. And coming out of the 2018 campaign school and having covered that campaign, I know that um, let's just say the race was not kind to the one young woman who was running for mayor. Uh, I guess, how does that change like your approach to this campaign school, having that, that sort of like one experience that was like really quite negative for one of the candidates. Um, and, 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 seemed to be because she was young and female as well. Correct. Well, we know that just generally women face a lot more um, negative stereotyping when they run mm. for politics. So it's not, it's not surprising what happened to her. So you're right. And then, you know, gender also intersects with things like age and background. And, and so that makes it even harder for um, people with diverse backgrounds to run and then add gender on top of that or, or add that to gender and, and you have even more um, challenges. Right. You open the door, so let's go through it. The theme for this campaign school isn't just about encouraging more women to run, but it's about encouraging more representation generally, LGBTQ+, uh, BIPOC, uh, other underrepresented groups. Um, are those uniquely different challenges for people who are from those groups and want to run for office? Or is it kind of like a similar of a piece? Like it's just a systemic challenge, the same challenges that women face. Um, I wouldn't say, <laughs> is it a systemic challenge? I don't know, but I think each group probably has some unique challenges. Mm. Um, so for the Guelph part of the campaign school, we partnered with Wellington County and Oxford County, um, and we're all doing things slightly differently. So the first part of the campaign school, the first phase is a webinar that really looks at diversity broadly and you know who's, who's represented, who's not, and, and trying to encourage just more diversity. The second phase in Guelph, we are going to focus on women. And part of the reason for that is that the feedback we got from the 2018 campaign school, women said they really appreciated having their own space. That, you know, in order to have their voices heard, to speak freely, to talk about their unique issues. So we are going to focus again at the in-person campaign school on women. Mm -hmm. I remember in 2018, I mean, there was a lot more representation, um, at least from the candidate side. It didn't eventually shake out in sort of the representation. I was actually elected to council, but there was 
there was certainly more representation in terms of the number of candidates. I guess appreciating that, as you said, a lot of these people from these groups need to be encouraged to run. I guess the next poll to vault is actually getting people from these groups onto council. And I guess, are there different challenges between getting people from underrepresented groups to running and encouraging them to run and then trying and, and then the challenge of trying to get them elected, especially when the, the field is very tight with, you know, people who are experienced and are incumbents and are familiar faces. Um, you know, is, is that a different challenge in and of itself? It is because we know that from the research that incumbents tend to win. And because the incumbency is a general um, demographic of white, older, and generally men. Um, so we know that we need more diverse candidates to run, but we also need to encourage them to run again, just because they don't win the first time. Mm. I mean, it often takes more than one attempt or what we found from the campaign school last time is that a number of the, the uh, participants didn't run for, uh, for election, but especially the young women, but they all sort of say they might consider it in the future. Mm. And many of them went on to other leadership positions in the community, which is great background to getting elect elected eventually. Mm -hmm. That idea of um, losing as a stepping stone to future success, um, that is something that, you know, should be kind of baked in. I mean, we have members of city council who ran for office uh, their first time and lost. The mayor ran for office the first time uh, for, for, as a ward councillor and lost. Uh, <laughs> several of the, the city councillors uh, ran in municipal elections, provincial elections, federal elections and lost before they became city councillors. Yeah. But I mean, there's also the, the stigma right, of losing and, and, you know, some people just kind of build that way. Oh, well, they don't want me. I guess I'll just go do something else now. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, I like the old saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, because name recognition is, is very, very important in politics. And mm. so if you're new and you're not well known in the community, it, you know, you have to get out there and get your name out there and, and running again raises the, your profile. Right. So I guess that's why you're, the panel you're having next week, you're, you're having people who have run and lost uh, taking part as well. So it's important to hear that voice and, and sort of recognize the lessons learned. Yeah. Failure is the great teacher, a little green man in a movie I once saw once <laughs> that. So. <laughs> so I guess the, the other question to this is, um, how do you encourage people to run i mean you're you're, you're approaching this, this honestly you're not saying that uh, running for office is great everyone's gonna love you you're, you're, you're trying to be honest as you can i can't imagine that's a difficult or, or that's a, that's an easy sell when you're saying like you may if you're a woman and you're running you will get like misogynists tweeting at you at 3 a.m some of the most disgusting things you've ever read in your life and that like I guess, how do you be honest and how do you still make that sound like 
something worth doing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's better that people know what they're getting into. And I guess uh, part of the, uh, the goal of the campaign school is also, also to let people know that we know this might happen to you, but there are people out there who are willing to support you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I guess that's the message that, yeah, it is messy business, but it's really important business. And, you know, to have the courage to do this is appreciated by those citizens who understand how difficult the role is. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fact that the people who hate you are more vocal than the people who support you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we'll hopefully address at the campaign school is how do you deal with that? You know, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you, you know, get those messages, but not let them change why you're running and who you are, uh, you know, remembering your values and what you stand for. and, And the fact that, yeah, that's the truth that you hear from the negative people more than you hear from the people who will support you. Are you anticipating a harder time getting, I mean, even just maybe anybody to run, uh, no matter what their background is? I mean, there's the pandemic to consider. That's a big question mark. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, like even the online negativity seems a bit more now. And, you know, when you think about like some of the conspiracy theories going around and people talking about, you know, fake elections and Mm -hmm. fake results, you know, is... I mean, how much of this is kind of like outside the control of, you know, being of you being like welcoming and encouraging to people to, to be on a ballot? Yeah, to be honest, I, I was thinking about that. I think it is going to be harder right now um, for many reasons. And one, we know that the pandemic had a bigger impact on women. Like there are a lot of women, um, Kate from Oxford, who's one of our organizers there, She has young children trying to sort of, you know, bridge the online schooling and being, you know, working and doing this kind of advocacy work. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be harder to encourage anybody to run, but but particularly women. Mm -hmm. I suppose that could be... I was going to say a strength, but that doesn't sound quite right. It could be like a selling point. It's like, you know, we need more women voices because there are sort of issues that are uniquely affecting women like the, I hate the term, the, the she session, but it's, there, there is an element of truth to that. So there's a reason why the, the term is sort of sticking, but um, like, like women have unique challenges in the face of the pandemic too, that need yeah. to be heard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's why we say we need uh the voices of women at the table because their issues are different and their life experience is different. And if they're not at the table, those things never get discussed. Mm-hmm. So what happens after campaign school in terms of like the support that you offer? Is it just like push them out the door and push them out of the nest and away they fly and maybe they fly and maybe they don't. But, you know, I guess what happens after you encourage someone to, to run out and fill out those forms? Yeah. Well, to be honest, we're still working on that piece, but our hope is to set up a mentoring um, situation where we can match people with a mentor who can support them uh, through their campaigns and, and, and offer as many sort of online resources as well so that they don't have to 
do all the work of searching the internet, but it'll be a nice, neat package that they can look at. Do you know from the last time how many people went on from campaign school and actually ran or how much, or, or I guess the, the ratio between people who were like campaign interested and people who went all the way. Yeah. <laughs> because we're <laughs> a small, I thought you would ask me that. And because we're a small volunteer group, we didn't actually collect that data. So, you know, what I do know is that some of the participants did go on um, to, to get elected either to school board or municipal councils um, Kate's a great example of someone who's moved away from Guelph, who's now trying to run a campaign school in Oxford County. Um, like I said, I know that several of the participants have taken on great leadership roles in our community. So, yeah, I don't have hard numbers. That's okay. Um, did you hear back from pe uh, people who took the campaign school and say, this is something you didn't prepare us for. Um, and, and has that like resulted in like a change, any change to the curriculum, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're just developing the curriculum now. Uh, COVID is, <laughs> it makes it harder to, to organize. Um, so we did do an evaluation. We, we uh, worked with SESI again, the community engaged scholarship. Um, and we did contact a, quite a number of the women. So we got some good feedback. So, um, you know, many of the um, things that people need to know will remain the same, you know, the basics, how, how do you raise funds? How do you know, what are the nuts and bolts of running a campaign? Um, but I think we will, you know, we got some good feedback and we will certainly take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, like I say, the women said that they really wanted a space to discuss the specific issues that or their concerns, their fears, you know, how to address those. There's kind of a, a thing that I'm, I'm sort of noticing out there in the media ecosphere, of, you know, people concerned about like segregation, um, about, you know, we're too obsessed with organizing people into their, their piles. And I understand there's the value of sort of having an environment for women that is just women and sort of like they can share more freely. And I guess the question is, um, how how do you balance those two? Like, because at the end of the day, all those women will have to go out into that world that can treat them toxically. Um, and just, you know, what what is the benefit of like having that circle of, of just women and, and, and in terms of like how it can prepare them for the rest of the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, and I don't disagree <laughs> with you that we, you know, that we sometimes do segregate people. I, I guess um, for me, just hearing the feedback from the women that, that they themselves want this um, was important. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done. What can I say? Mm. Like all of these other groups, you're right. We, you know, one campaign school can't address all of the issues of the various different groups. So, you know, if you're um, BIPOC or, or young people, mm. you know, I, I mean, we are encouraging everyone to come to the webinar, but beyond that, 
Like personally, I don't feel that I could organize something for youth. Uh, what do I know? It's not my lived experience, right. but I think it's important. You know, so if the youth want to organize something, I'd certainly encourage them to do that. And and it's nice to see that the youth are politically engaged in that they're out there acting on what they what they want. But the bigger question is how do we get from the representation that we need? Although there's also a big question about how people will listen, because, again, thinking about Aggie in 2018, a lot of people wrote her off because she was under 30, um, because she hadn't had like a serious job. I'm using (laughs) I'm using angry finger quotes, but, you know, it it just and and I imagine a lot of this is the same for women candidates and and pretty much anyone who hasn't lined up their lives, according to the fact that we're going to run for office one day. It's like, well, what do you know? You know, we we. We expect people running for office to be able to fulfill uh, mandates of a imaginary job description in a lot of cases. And I see that in online comments all the time. Well, what experience does this person have? It's like, well, what experience does anyone running for office have? You don't have to have experience. You just have to be a certain age, a resident of an area and a Canadian citizen or whatever. And, you know, those are the qualifications. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we do have to, you know, keep talking about the stereotype that, you know, you, there's a belief that running for office, you have to have a, a white collar job. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And so then we don't get the representation uh, from other groups. And of course, we see what happens in places like the United States when a whole group of people feels that they have no representation, no voice. Mm. So, you know, this is a big issue and it's a threat to democracy unless we sort of figure out how to have real conversations about this and really talk about, you know, what is needed to run for council. So hopefully we'll start some of that conversation through the campaign school because the reality is no matter what your background, there's a big learning curve. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to be a counselor, it, you need, there's a big learning curve. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, and if, you know, if I could add to that, just from my experience of like tweeting about city council, it's, um, you know, there's a big difference between what candidates run on and then what they actually do. And it's not because they sort of abandon their aspirations or their platforms. It's because uh, you sit down with the CAO, the clerk, the city solicitor, and you learn exactly what your powers are. And it, it speaks to like a certain lack, I guess, of uh, civics awareness that I think we could, we could all stand to, to be a little bit more um, knowledgeable about. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the other sort of um, plug for having more women Mm. is that generally women do tend to want to more work more collaboratively mm-hmm. and across, you know, they, they, they try to get to consensus, not, not all women, of course, but, you know, as, as a rule. Um, and that's what we need if we're going to have diverse representation. Mm-hmm. It makes, it makes it, the decision-making process is longer but hopefully at the end, we have a better outcome. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to note that a lot of like the, the infighting I've seen in council, whether it's in person or kind of online, it very rarely involves one of the lady councillors, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Teresa, if 
people want to learn more about campaign school, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Yeah. So the best way is just to go to the website, which is municipalcampaignschool.ca. Um, the registration for the webinar, which is happening on November the 10th at 7 p.m., is on the first page. And then each of the three regions have their own um, page. You sold that like it was a slap chop. So uh, that, was, <laughs> that was good. Um, and it was a good conversation, too. So, Teresa McKeeman, thank you so much for uh, hopping on with me today. No, oh, you're welcome. So that was... Oh, who was that again? Teresa McKeeman. <laughs> it's been a day. You've got a case of the winters, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Anyway. Um, and it's only Thursday. Exactly. Uh, it's not winter yet either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, must be all that leftover candy from. Mm. We'll blame that. Sure. All right. Cool. Let's wrap up the show. Yeah. Um... <laughs> go to school. Go to. Okay. Go to campaign school, run for Go something. to campaign school. Absolutely. So we have something to talk about. Yeah, we want to Yeah, run for office and then we can interview on our interview you on our show. Anyway, uh, that is it for the show. We hope you liked it. Stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We are at Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and we are on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You may listen to this show again if you like by downloading it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for all things CFRU beyond listening to this fine station here at 93.3, check out CFRU.ca. And so, you know, we have uh, maybe 40 seconds before we have to peace out. So I'll just plug uh, the Guelph Film Festival starting this weekend. Oh, yeah. GuelphFilmFestival.ca. There's some great stuff. I've been interviewing a lot of the filmmakers for end credits. And one of the films launching this week is called The Magnitude of All Things, which is uh, excellent. And I don't say that lightly because I've seen 100 documentaries about climate change. This may be the best one. So. Uh, that is a solid recommendation. Check out Magnitude of All Things. Um, it may help galvanize some of your thinking on uh, climate change. And if you want to think about music instead, that's what DJ Sounds Good to Me is here for. She is at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for more open sources. And we will see you then. Solid.